With the great belching of smoke and the screech of iron against iron, the engine rumbled to a halt. Behind it, the cattle cars clattered and banged as they, too, stopped. Four hundred male prisoners of war had travelled in these trucks from one end of Poland to the other. The journey from Warsaw had been intolerable for these men, jam-packed like sardines in a tin, ninety to a truck, which normally accommodated eight horses. The only light, and ventilation for that matter, came from a small barred window. They had been given nothing to eat or drink, either before or during the journey, and the only means of sanitation was a bucket placed in each car. Now it was early evening, and for the first time today, May the 28th, 1941, the car doors were rolled open and ramps put in position. Get out! Get out, everyone! Everyone out! Move! Move! Along the platform, Nazi SS men, guns at the ready, prodded the masses who weakly staggered down the wooden planks at Auschwitz station. Watering eyes slowly adjusted to the light, and pale, haggard and unshaven faces registered relief as they breathed in the fresh air. Get into line, you scum! Obey! Obey! Every one of you into lines! The pitiful rabble obeyed immediately. They were getting used to the sight of rifle muzzles and grinning guards, yet it unnerved them just the same. One young man, no more than eighteen, bent down and helped another to his feet. For God's sake, Joseph, get up. You don't want another beating. Staggering to his feet, the other fellow replied, No, I don't think I could stand another beating, but I can't walk either. That journey's done me in. I feel so bad. I ache all over. Oh, come on, you'll feel a jolly sight worse if you don't walk. He pushed his brother forward. What are they going to do with us now, Ezra? I've heard that Auschwitz is a labour camp. We'll have to build roads and things, or go into their big ammunition factories. That is, for those of us who are fit enough. Oh, hell, I'll never be fit enough. So what'll become of me? A quiet voice behind them said, You'll be all right. The two young Jews turned. The man who had spoken was middle-aged, slightly built, and rather stooped. Dressed in an odd assortment of clothing, his appearance was far from impressive, though his brown eyes behind thin wire-framed spectacles were calm and serene, in contrast to the haunted, vacant stares of so many around him. He smiled at the pair and said, My name's Colby, Father Maximilian Colby. I'm a Franciscan friar. Are your names? I'm Ezra, and this is my younger brother, Joseph. They looked searchingly at him. Though still teenagers, both lads had the hardened, set faces that came from nearly two years of Nazi domination. Any further talk was stopped by a guard who pointed his gun menacingly towards the three. Silence, do you hear? Not another word. You will not talk to each other. Nearly all the prisoners of war who had now spilled out of the cattle cars were Poles. Soldiers for the most, but there were also Jews, common criminals, and Catholic priests. Now above the nervous murmur as the men shuffled into lines came the sound of Nazi jackboots as the wearers tramped up and down the ramps. Having assured themselves that the freight cars were empty, they slammed the doors back into place. Then came the orders. Attention! Attention! Right turn! Start moving! At the double! At the double! Picking up their battered suitcases or bags which held their worldly belongings, and goaded along by the gun butts of SS men, the sad array of prisoners moved off. Dust spat up from the ground at the impact of each heel as the men endeavoured to run, their legs forced high up in the exaggerated style of the Nazis. 
Whips cracked, and trained Alsatian dogs snapped at their heels as the mile to Auschwitz was covered. The prison camp came into sight. It was vast. Watchtowers loomed over dreary rows of wooden barrack huts, and the high barbed wire fences seemed to be ready and waiting to engulf the new intake. They were still at running pace as they passed through the camp entrance. It was eerie and menacing. Machine guns looked down on them, and the skull and crossbones on the fences carried a fearful reminder of an electrification which spelled instant death. Hungry and weak, the new arrivals were brought to a halt in the camp square, and now, with sinking hearts, they gazed around. In the distance, they saw skeletal figures in pyjama-type striped clothing working under the watchful eyes of guards, while outside a nearby barrack marked 24, 12 men, their faces to the wall, were sagging to the ground. On the immediate left, there was a building with many chimneys, and ahead, lines of wooden barracks and a low building which looked like the camp kitchen. Over to the right, the reception centre. After what seemed an interminable time, the camp commandant, accompanied by SS officers, emerged from his office and strutted across the square. His uniform was immaculate. Black tunic bedecked with metal ribbons, black breeches, black boots and tie, and a black high-crowned peak cap. A Luger pistol was jammed into a leather holster at his side. Eyeing the men before him, he commenced what was now a well-rehearsed diatribe of rules and regulations which he had been churning out since the camp opened in June 1940, almost a year before. Nevertheless, the commandant still drooled with absolute relish over the final punchline. And remember, you have come to a concentration camp from which there is no other exit except through the crematorium chimney. He pointed to the tall chimneys, and then, turning on his heels, he returned from whence he had come. His place was taken by a fellow SS officer who proceeded to call each prisoner by name. As each person heard his name, he was made to run towards those already accounted for, while the guards amused themselves by beating and tripping them up. At the completion of roll call, the men were marched to the small barrack that served as a reception centre, and here the complete train load were herded in like sheep. Once the wooden bar on the door was wedged into place behind them, it took no time at all for the whole atmosphere to become stuffy and foul-smelling. There was hardly a place for the dirty, exhausted men to sit, let alone lie. Their bones ached, their stomachs gnawed with hunger, and tempers flared as prisoners tripped and fell over baggage. Beside the door, there were two small barred windows. From time to time, the guards peered through, and so did the inmates, but their view was limited to the backs of a few barracks and the parade ground, and so they lost interest. The sudden sound of a bell brought those prisoners nearest the windows to their feet again, and craning their necks, they endeavoured to see what was going on. They're lining up in the parade ground. It must be roll call. But, said one man, No, look, just look in front of them. Oh, my God, there's a gallows. There's going to be an execution. 
At these words there were frightened murmurs from those inside the hut. Then they were quiet. The silence was terrifying. It must be those poor men we saw, those with their faces to the wall, Joseph whispered to his brother as the muttering started again. Those by the windows, however, remained silent. Twelve men, in bare feet, with their wrists tied behind their back, were being led to portable gallows. In front of the gallows stood the camp commandant, senior SS men, and sentries armed with automatic rifles. Once the condemned were standing on stools with a noose around their necks, the commandant read the death sentence. Hardly had he done so when the stools were kicked away from the unfortunate victims. Turning to the lines of prisoners who had been made to witness this gruesome spectacle, the commandant roared, Let this be a lesson to all those who might be considering leaving the camp. For each person who escapes, twenty in his block will die. Not like this, though. What you have seen was merciful and quick. It won't be so the next time. It'll be the starvation bunkers. Beside Maximilian Kolbe, a young soldier no more than sixteen years of age, covered his face with his hands and began sobbing loudly. All right, all right, lad. Putting his arms around the slender youth, Colbay cradled him until the noise subsided. Then, gently lifting the boy's chin, the friar said, Come now, why don't we pray a little? The soldier looked into a pair of tranquil eyes but did not reply. Taking his rosary beads from his pocket, the older man began the prayers. And then he smiled, when, after a while, the boy's trembling voice joined his own. Before long, other voices quietly mingled with theirs. night passed, and dawn found the Nazi soldiers in top form. Bored themselves, they were forever looking for some form of amusement. Now they took great pleasure in lashing out with metal-tipped truncheons at those who did not get out of the tiny, stinking room quickly enough. Move, you dirty scum! Move! You will obey us in all things, and don't you ever forget it. At this camp, you do everything at the double. So now, run! Just as sheep are rounded up, so were they until Block 26 was reached. Here they were made to halt and form ranks. Undress! Everyone undress! Put your clothes in neat piles on the ground! Without warning, everyone's head was brutally and crudely shaved as the de-lousing process commenced. The guards abused and beat the prisoners as they were forcibly crowded into a bathhouse. Here they were showered with icy cold water. Five minutes later found them back in the square, wet and naked. Their own clothes had been replaced by the prison uniform, striped trousers, jacket, undershirt, and drawers. When the order came to get dressed, there was no hesitation on the part of the prisoners to do so. Clothing, such as it was, they dragged over their wet bodies. Nothing fitted, garments were either too large or too small, and it was all dirty and blood-stained from previous wearers. This was the least of their worries. It was the footwear which caused the problem, to be given a pair of shoes or wooden clogs that neither went on or stayed on was a misery in itself. 
no swapping was permitted, and so it was that they hobbled along to be registered, and then tattooed on the left forearm with an identification number. A coloured triangle of cloth was now stitched above the camp number on their clothing. This denoted the offence for which each prisoner had been detained. Green for common criminals, yellow for Jews, and red for political prisoners, which included the priests. Inside the triangle, the first letter of the name of the country from which the prisoner came was included. The men had now lost their identity, becoming faceless numbers on a Nazi list, and as such were assigned to blocks. All had now gone, with the exception of priests and Jews. The infamous Block 17 had been reserved for them. When they arrived, Block 17 was empty. The working party had long since left. The sight which met their eyes when they were ushered in was revolting. The dirty, wet walls were covered with green mildew, and so were the row after row of three-tiered wooden bunks, while the floor of the narrow aisles between them were nothing but a quagmire of slimy mud. The few odorous blankets which lay around were filthy and running alive with lice, and the straw pallets which served as mattresses were putrid. Although it was the end of May, with the sun nearing its zenith, the place was freezing cold, and so it was with great relief that the new arrivals queued up to receive the first food they had had for days. This was soup, which they swallowed under the watchful eyes of the kapos, professional criminals hand-picked by the Nazis to assist them at prison camps. The so-called soup, made from spoiled and leftover food, contained many foreign bodies, but even so, it was hot with some potato and odd bits of fat. It's not exactly the Warsaw Hotel, Ezra attempted to joke as he fished out an old broken button. No, but it is food, replied Father Maximilian. The afternoon passed uneventfully. No one disturbed them as they waited in their quarters for the next move, and thankfully, despite the filth and lice, they rested. Just before 7 p.m. the alarm bell went off. Going to the windows, they looked over towards where the land was being levelled out. Coming from this area were streams of emaciated men in a state of exhaustion after the day's work. Some, barely able to put one foot in front of the other, were being supported by other equally exhausted prisoners. The strong were pushing wheelbarrows, piled high with either dead or unconscious bodies. All made for their own barrack, and those able to do so formed into lines of ten. Once the block senior had counted every person, including the dead, he disappeared into the commandant's office, leaving the men standing to attention. And there they remained. They stood, and they stood. Those who collapsed were carried forward and placed next to the dead. Two hours later, the prisoners were at last dismissed. The door banged open, and in swept a flood of humanity. They fought, they swore, they threatened as they struggled to get to a bunk. Others who had lost the will to live, shuffled in last, and oblivious to all, lay down on the muddy floor. All these men, horror showed on Joseph's face. How can we all survive in here? Colby and the others, grouped together by the window, said nothing. Dirty, sweating, unwashed bodies, congealed blood on torn and blistered feet and hands. The smell was nauseating. Even had any of them the energy to freshen up, there was only dirty, cold water that had been used many times before. 
but most had lost all self-respect to bother anyway. "'Yes,' said a voice from the bunk. "'All us men. There's only meant to be three hundred in each barrack, but there's nearly twice that number in here, plus you lot. The transports are getting more frequent. I reckon the next load will have to sleep out in the open.' "'Ha! You're joking!' said his companion. "'At the rate we're dying off, there'll be room enough for hundreds more. Thirty in our working party died today. If it isn't the hard work and the beatings, then it's malaria. Three to six months. That's the average lease of life here.' "'But it's a prisoner of war camp,' Joseph said hopefully. "'Surely—' "'Then forced labour, you mean. "'You think you'll get out alive? "'Forget it. "'We'll all die from this block. "'If the beasts don't beat us to death, "'our hearts will burst with exhaustion. "'Though I suppose you can take the easy way out "'and run into the wires and frizzle to death.' "'No more was said for a few minutes, "'and then the silence was broken by the first of the two speakers. "'Welcome to Block Seventeen. It's known as Death Row. I'm Mordecai, and this is Rudy. Our name is Cohen, said Ezra, pointing to himself and Joseph, and this here is Father Colbe. Ah, a priest, you say, a Catholic priest, said Rudy. Ah, well, you're just as superfluous as we Jews. Us they kill off like flies. You, he shrugged his shoulders. Well, all clerics are humiliated and tortured, so bloody Crot will have a field day with you. Ignoring that remark, the friar asked, Does roll call always take that long? Long? Do you call that long? There was nothing. Sometimes we're out there until the early hours of the morning. A few days ago it was one o'clock in the morning before they dismissed us. But why? asked Maximilian Colbert. Because they hate us. They do it on purpose. Depends what mood Fritz is in. Who's Fritz? the camp commandant. He's not human. If the Jerrys have had a bad day at the front, or the resistance movement shoots someone important, then they take it out on us. The conversation was interrupted at this point by the entry of two inmates staggering under the weight of a fifty-quart urn of liquid. Behind them came two other kitchen helpers with the evening supper. Bringing up the rear and brandishing clubs came the capos who attended to the division of the rations. As one, the men surged forward in a fight to be among the first, quite oblivious of the blows rained down on them. "'Get into line! Quiet! Quiet! Or you'll get nothing at all!' shouted the Kapos, as they hit out at anyone and everyone. Tonight's meal consisted of their daily bread allowance. It was black, with a large proportion of sawdust, and weighed six and a half ounces. To go with this, they each had one teaspoon of margarine. Nobody quite knew what it was that came from the urn, brownish-coloured liquid which was flatteringly called coffee. The men were so starved that so long as something passed their lips, they did not care. Maximilian Colbe, the last in line, was served, and the kitchen party left. But what about these men? Father Colbe indicated the ones who still lay or sat on the floor staring vacantly. Oh, those, said Rudy, they're Muslims. That's camp jargon for those in a prolonged state of starvation. There's nothing you can do for them. They'll not eat anything anyway. They're only a stone's throw away from death, and they don't know where they are or what they're doing. Look, mate, you just look after yourself. It's the survival of the fittest in this hellhole. Maximilian went over to the nearest group and dropped down beside them. He flinched. 
Their bones were barely covered with skin. Come, he said to one, drink, drink. He put the cup of liquid to the poor soul's lips and tried to force a little down him, then a morsel of bread, and so to the next one. It's no good, Padre. You're wasting your time. They won't last long, said Mordecai. And, said Rudy, you won't be so generous tomorrow after the day's slave labour. You'll be fighting like the rest of us for every scrap. With the meal over, there was nothing to do. From one roll call to another, from one ration of food to the next, and time stretched endlessly. All around, violent arguments broke out, for with six to eight men to each berth, the situation was murderous. For all to sleep at once was virtually impossible, even to move was sheer agony. They coughed, deep, racking coughs. They spat, groaned, snored, as another night of hell crept on, their fitful sleep just a continuation of the day's torments. Periodically a voice cried out, Let me out! Let me out! I must go to the latrine! As the desperate individual moved from the berth, so his place was immediately taken by another. But not one Moslem moved. They lay still on the floor. Nearby, Maximilian crouched in a corner. He was stunned by it all. Oh, God, he thought. There's so much hatred here, so much evil. I can't let these men die with this dreadful bitterness in their hearts. Then, recalling the words of St. Francis, the priest whispered, O oh Mary, Immaculate Mother of God, where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. It was with some sense of relief that the prisoners heard the loud clanging camp bell summoning them to morning roll call. Breakfast had already been served, a cup of evil-smelling liquid which was labelled tea. There was a stampede as men, fearful of arriving late at the assembly point, rushed out. Fear of another flogging, or being sent to a penal company, or even labouring in off-hours with no rations. For the Muslims, or sick, there was a hospital bed waiting, and a lethal injection in the heart. At Auschwitz, everyone had to either work or die. For the majority, this roll call meant the start of another twelve hours' toil, broken only by half an hour for lunch, a tin mug of soup. For the newcomers, it was their first day of camp life. The block senior, accompanied by a section head, moved through the lines. They stopped in front of prisoner 16670. This one's a priest, another useless parasite of society. Crot, show him what work really means. Leave it to me, Herr Blockfuhrer. After dismissal, 
Father Maximilian was assigned to the work detail extending and constructing new buildings. It was back-breaking drudgery, digging up sand and stone, loading it into wheelbarrows, running them to the site while guards cracked horsewhips. When at last the friar sat down with the others, little Hugh's muscles screamed in rebellion at having been so violently awakened. His hand shook so that he could hardly hold his tin mug. He also felt nauseated by a sickening sweetish smell that seemed to have been in the air ever since his arrival in the camp. "'What is that smell?' he asked Mordecai, who had shuffled over to join him. "'Ah, oh, that! <laughs> it's the bakery!' <laughs> "'Bakery?' "'Yes. That's where they cook the bodies. You know, the dead or dying.' That's the crematoria. What you can smell is burnt flesh. God knows what they're up to now. Just look at the size of these new ovens we're building. They're big enough to burn a battalion. Maximilian listened in silence. I don't know. My imagination doesn't stretch that far, but what I do know is that we die like flies, and there's always smoke coming from the crematorium chimneys. But what's all this building for? The answer he received was unexpected. A whip cracked and a furrow appeared across his face. Get back to work, you Jewish swine! It's not the bloody Sabbath! With that, everyone was hustled to their feet. Dusk was a long time coming. Pleading eyes urged the sun to earth, bodies long just to drop to the ground, yet knowing that if they did, the outcome would be a horsewhip or death. Now the newcomers understood. They had already been standing for over an hour, though some, as their masters dictated, were kneeling with arms stretched up above their heads. It was a slow, crucifying hell, and none of them knew how much longer they would be made to stay there. Just to sit on the ground, to go to the latrine, even that most necessary of bodily functions was forbidden them. Twice daily was the limit. This evening the inmates of Auschwitz were in luck. The commandant was throwing a party, and all the senior SS were going. In contrast to the top table laden with every luxury, those in Block 17 were served with their bread ration, and tonight, instead of the teaspoon of margarine, they had the luxury of a razor-thin slice of sausage. Maximilian crouched on the floor, pondering. How long can these poor things go on? None of them can last more than a couple of months at the most. On this diet. The daily intake was scarcely enough to sustain a body at rest, let alone under slave labor. The symptoms of malnutrition were all around him. Apathy, slow movement, failed memory, and the inability to concentrate when talking. He looked around at the mass of depraved humanity. Oh, no wonder they're bitter. What hope have they? Certainly not in this life. But... Though all forms of religious practices were forbidden in the camp, Maximilian Kolbe, as the days went by, secretly gathered together the other priests in the barrack. They had been in the camp longer than he, and like everyone else, they were in the depths of despair. Come now, my friends. There is something we can do. We can pray. They looked at him without enthusiasm, but he took no notice and softly began the rosary. Eventually, they joined in. Oh, mother, said Kobe to himself, please help me.
to help these men? The prayers came to an end. Do you know, Colbe smiled at the uninspired men around him, when suffering is far away, we are all ready and willing to say we'll suffer anything, do anything for our Lord and His Mother. Oh, it's easy enough to say this when we're in our comfortable and easy life, but now, with suffering, great suffering on our doorstep, it's not so easy, is it? But even so, we must take advantage of this time. Come, let us make a pact with our dearest mother Mary to accept all of this and anything and everything God sends us. To suffer and to die, if need be, to help others survive. We must help save souls. Help these souls not to die with bitterness in their hearts. You know, we mustn't succumb to the contamination of hatred. Don't let us become like animals, fighting and clawing at each other for one miserly crust of bread. His little audience listened in silence. At last, one of them said wearily, You're right. We shouldn't give in to tyranny. If we are to die, we ought at least to die like men. The days came and went, and the short, stooped priest became an enigma to the men of Block 17. They couldn't help being affected by his kindness, and he smiled and laughed, and it had been such a long time since they had heard anything like it. But even so, he had not quite won them over. Out of earshot, one or the other had something to say. Oh, it's all very well. He's new to the camp. Give him a while. I'll soon crush his spirit like they had the rest of us. After just a few days, Maximilian was taken off the crematorium detail and with other priests transferred to a work company called Pebitsa, which was especially reserved for them. Their assignment was to reclaim swampland outside the camp. Not only had the unfortunate prisoners to chop down the trees, but they had also to carry them, two or three times their own weight across glutinously muddy terrain. If any one of them slackened their speed or stumbled and fell, then they were rewarded with an unmerciful beating. It was little wonder that the death rate on this section exceeded all others. Right from the start... Bloody Crot had his eyes on Maximilian Kolbe. Of all the priests who slaved at his command, there was something different about this one. I can live with glaring eyes that give me hate for hate, but this one, he told a companion, all he does is smile and look at me with love. It's, well, I don't know what to say, but I'll break him. And so Crot stepped up his ill-treatment of the prisoner. Flogging with an iron-wired, leather-thonged whip was ordered. Father Colbe was beaten so badly that his fellow priests moved forward to help him. No, please, please go away. You might get caught helping me, and then you'll get the same treatment. Mary, the Immaculate Mother, is helping me. I'll be all right. I'll hold on. And somehow he got himself back to the barracks. Smiling lovingly at those who tried to make his smashed and bleeding body comfortable, he said, They may kill our bodies, but they can't kill our souls. If we're going to die, then we shall die in peace, perfectly resigned to God's will and loving Him above all else. The ill-treatment continued solidly for two weeks. Crot had made no progress in his resolve to destroy the man 
and frustration boiled up inside him. On this particular day, when he saw the Franciscan still on his feet and hobbling along, he couldn't contain himself. So, the imbecile is still with us, eh? Then, pointing to the largest tree trunks, he said to a capo, Put those on his back. And as Maximilian staggered and swayed under the weight, Crot ordered, Now, run! Run at the double! The priest took a few steps and then stumbled and fell. Like a crazed animal, Crot rushed at him and kicked him over and over again, in the stomach, in the face. The work detail looked on in horror. So you don't want to work, you sluggard. I'll show you, I'll teach you what work is. Somehow Father Maximilian kept going until the meal break. But there was to be no meal for him. Here you, lie down over there. He pointed towards a pile of wood. Now, you guard, give the lazy swine fifty lashes. The prostrate figure writhed in agony as the stripes bit into his flesh. When it was over, Maximilian Kolbe was still, and Crot, believing him to be dead, kicked the broken body into a rut, covered it with brushwood, and walked away. It was not until the evening, when the work duty was over, that his workmates were able to carry away the battered but conscious body. In the morning, they sneaked him into the hospital block. This was a deplorable mockery of a place, and totally undeserving of the name. In fact, it was no different from the quarters he had left. Dirty, overcrowded, with three or four men crammed into each bed, and there was little or no medication, poor supervision and no nursing to speak of. Hopeless cases covered in boils and broken sores as a result of malnutrition lay beside the unconscious bodies of the beaten. Others in there were from Punishment Block 11, the hapless victims of torture and experiments. Father Colby himself was in a lamentable state, and apart from his disfigured face, he had a raging fever and could barely talk. Even so, he had a request to make of a fellow prisoner who had been assigned to work in the infirmary. Please, put me near the door. The door? But why? All you see there is the dead being wheeled out. Yes, I know that, and that's exactly the reason. I want to pray for them. The man was reluctant. But, Father, you're burning up so badly with fever, you'll need all the peace you can get. Anyway... Don't you think you've suffered enough? Oh, but I'm prepared to suffer very much more for Jesus. And Mary is with me. She helps me. A few days later, although he was more rested, 
His body still burned, and his mouth and throat were dry. Here, father, here's a cup of tea for you. Come, drink it. It'll do you good. Looking around, Maximilian said, But what about the others? Aren't they having any? No, they're not. We're only allowed tea twice a day, but I made this especially for you. No, I don't want it. If the others are not having any, neither will I. It's very kind of you, but I don't want to be the exception. Please take it away. Little by little, the fever left him, and he began talking to the other inmates. He spoke of love, the love of God. He heard their confessions in secret, but above all, he comforted and encouraged everyone. During the night, some dragged themselves as best they could to his bedside. Even though the situation was hopeless, they knew that he would say a few words to help. Look to Mary, Mary Immaculate. She loves us, and she listens to us. Trust her. Trust her completely. How can such a good mother ever abandon her children? To those who had lost all faith in God, he said, Don't you see? It's an honor to suffer. Just think, Jesus has chosen us to share in his suffering. Don't forget, he too was persecuted and rejected by all. He knew indescribable sadness and exhaustion. They beat him, nailed him to the cross, ridiculed him, just as they do us. But he forgave them. Jesus forgave his persecutors. So should we. Let's offer up our sufferings for them. At Lourdes, and at Fatima too, our Blessed Mother asked for penance. Well, this is indeed a time of great penance and suffering. Let's use it. Profit by it. We can still offer our afflictions that this war may soon end, and that there will be survivors from this camp. One night someone called him, and going over to the bedside, Father Colbert recognized the face of the young soldier he had tried to comfort that first night at the reception center. Hello, my friend. How are you? Oh, Father, I'm so frightened. I don't want to die. I don't want... You won't die, my child. He took the boy's hand. You're still very young. You have the strength to survive. You'll see, once this fever has left you. But, Father, they die like flies. Yes, I know, but they're much older than you are. What's your name? Stefan. Have you any family, Stefan? Yes, yes, I have. My parents, I have two sisters, and a little brother. I'm the eldest. My father's not all that good. He had an accident on the farm, damaged his leg. Then he's going to need you. He'll need all the help you can give him. So you better not let him down, eh? Don't you want to see them again? Of course I do. Then you will. Why, I bet they pray every day to Our Lady of Chestercova for you. I expect so. We've got a big picture in the kitchen, and we all used to say the rosary every night in front of it. Then you'll return to them, Stefan. Our Immaculate Mother never lets us down. And he smiled at the young man. Now then, you try and get some sleep, and think about our Blessed Mother. Unlike the soldier, 
Most in the hospital barrack knew they had no hope, and each day saw the SS doctors making their rounds and selecting those who were to have phenol injected into their hearts. Father Maximilian helped the men to resign themselves. Now listen, whatever happens, it can only be for our good. So we die. Won't it be a free ticket to heaven? Surely we ought to thank our persecutors for giving us such a quick and easy route. One afternoon, when the sick were being disposed of in this way, the sight of the needle reminded Maximilian of the inevitability of his own death. Before his arrest, he had had a premonition of it, and in his own fashion warned his confreres. How happy one must be when dying the death of a soldier, not in one's bed, but at the stake, facing a firing squad with a bullet in the heart, when sealing with one's blood one's love for Mary Immaculate, when shedding it to the last drop so as to hasten the conquest of the whole world, for Christ, for her. That is what I wish for you, my little children, and that is what I wish for myself. It was now early July, and Maximilian Kolbe had been in Auschwitz five weeks. Although he still suffered from fever, and the tuberculosis which had plagued him most of his life worsened considerably, he was nevertheless transferred from the hospital to block number 12, the home of the invalids. Here the inmates, as non-workers, were put on to half rations, yet miraculously they clung to life, and each day found them queuing for the meagre food allowance. And then they queued for medication. With four hundred sick in the barrack, this took hours, and by the time Father Colbe's turn came round, the doctors themselves were fatigued. Seeing the now familiar figure, however, meant that the morning's surgery had come to an end. Last again, eh? One of these days we'll run out of serum when your turn comes. Well, I don't mind that, Dr. Fultz, so long as the others have theirs. And smiling gently, the priest walked away. The doctor's eyes followed him. I don't know, I've never met a man the like of that one. Who do you mean? Prisoner 166-something or other? asked the other doctor. Hmm, what a man. Oh, come on, Fultz, you've been working too hard. Yes, I know that, but tell me, have you ever seen a man love people the way that one does? Would you give away your food to the young? Would you make sure everyone was treated before you? No, of course you wouldn't, and neither would I. Doctor, you really must control yourself. Have you gone mad? These men are enemies of the Reich. Mm, sometimes it makes me think we've got a lot to answer for the way we treat these prisoners. Ah, so that's it, is it? Over the last two weeks you've become so familiar with this man that you've let him turn your head. Just you be careful, Fultz. You know as well as I do what the Fuhrer thinks of Jews. Well, that man's not a Jew. He's a Polish priest. Well, that's as bad. Anyway, most of our enemies are Jews, and they're the scum of the earth. And just in case you need reminding, Fultz, it's the Fuhrer's intention to set the Aryan against the Jew until the Jew is destroyed. We in the SS have the special honour of helping the Fuhrer rid the earth of them. Oh, for God's sake! Why, they have insinuated themselves into our life, spread their tentacles to stop Germany realising her destiny. We've got to annihilate millions of them, if necessary, and other enemies of the Reich, like that swine priest you're talking about. He's a danger, all right. 
In contrast to this vituperation, Father Colbay was talking gently in a corner of the barrack to a coterie that had gathered round him since the day he first entered the block. As it happened, it was the priest's last discussion with this particular group. For the next day, July the 24th, he was transferred to Block 14. Maximilian's fever had now gone, and he was considered fit enough for manual work. He was assigned to the farm. The weather was warm and sunny, and although they were kept busy, the friar could not help thinking that, compared with Crot's penal colony, this was a holiday. But even so, the farm had a hidden snare. Far away as it was from the barbed wire fences of camp, those fields thick with fully grown wheat were very inviting for those with a mind to escape. One week later the temptation proved to be too much, and in the late afternoon rumour swept among the workers that someone had gone. At evening roll call the rumour became fact when his absence from Block 14 was discovered. While guards and tracker dogs continued the search, the prisoners from this block were kept standing on the parade ground. The camp commandant addressed them. So, you still think about escaping, do you? If you thought about work more, you'd be better off. I gave you a good warning of what would happen if anyone escaped. And turning on his heel, he delivered his final words. If the braggart is not caught by this time tomorrow, twenty of you will go to the starvation bunker. That night, the men in Block 14 slept little. Those who did woke periodically, screaming in terror. Some sat and stared into space, or walked up and down, hoping the prisoner would be caught. Others, led by Maximilian, prayed for courage. The long hours of the night gradually gave way to the dawn light and roll call. Every man in the camp assembled. "'The prisoner,' said the commandant, "'has not been found. "'You will all now proceed to your work assignments, "'all, that is, except Block 14. "'You prisoners will remain where you are.' "'All day they stood, while the sun burned down relentlessly. "'One after the other, men fainted, "'and if they didn't revive, the guards beat them "'and piled the bodies in a heap. Too many now were falling, "'and at three o'clock half an hour's rest was announced.' and they were given a bowl of soup. This was the first thing to pass their lips since the previous midday. Then it was back to the torture of standing to attention. At six o'clock, Commandant Fritsch emerged from his office. The prisoner has not been caught. Still, to show you that the German Reich is merciful, fifteen, uh, no, ten men will die. And so began a gruesome lottery. There were ten lines of men, sixty to a row. Slowly, on the hard-baked earth, he weaved in and out. Ten times his feet ground to a halt. That one, he pointed to a man. Immediately, the man's number was written down on a list. Then the guards grabbed him and hauled him out in front of the ranks. When the finger pointed at a man named Gajovnich, Tears streamed down his hollow cheeks. "'Oh, my wife! My poor children!' The words were stifled as he too was roughly dragged forward and pushed with the other nine. The lottery had lasted only minutes, but to the silent, gaunt figures of Block 14 it seemed like a lifetime. Fritsch gave the next order. "'Remove your boots!' 
The ten did so. Left turn! Now it was over, but not quite, for as they prepared to march off, a prisoner broke the ranks. Ignoring the pointing guns, he walked slowly and painfully towards the German officer. Fritsch went for his gun. Stop, you Polish pig! Prisoner 16670 halted. Then he spoke. Please, Herr Commandant, I would like to take the place of one of these men. What? Are you crazy? Pointing towards Gajovnitz, Maximilian Kolbe said, That one. But why? Because, Herr Commandant, I'm old and sick and barely able to work. This man is strong, and he has a wife and family. Fritsch stared into the eyes of this wisp of a man with stunned amazement. There was a long pause while the Commandant gazed at Maximilian. Then his eyes dropped, and he breathed hoarsely, Who are you? I am a Catholic priest. The silence seemed interminable. Finally, with his eyes still lowered to the ground, Fritsch said, All right, accept it. Go with them. number 16670 was added to the list, and that of Gajovnitz erased. Now, said Fritsch, march. Going past the barrack, the ten men knew that this was the last time they would see the light of day. The clear blue sky, the sun with its canopy of red, or breathe in the cool evening air and feel the earth beneath their bare feet. Prisoners from the other blocks looked abjectly on. Some whispered a prayer and blessed themselves. Some wept. The condemned men filed past, nine of them with ashen faces and lifeless eyes. Maximilian Kolbe alone was suffused with happiness. For although the lottery had torn him apart, not because he feared death, but because the sight of the poor, miserable wretches being dragged from the ranks, helpless, innocent had broken his heart. He bled for them, wanted to be with them in their suffering, to share with them and to help them to die. Now nothing could take away the friar's indescribable peace. The moment of destiny had struck. Maximilian Kolbe was oblivious of the hard, dusty earth and the stones which cut into his feet. In his mind he had gone back in time to when he was a small boy. Then his name was Raymond, 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 Raymond. Raymond, please, 
Can't you see I'm cooking? Why don't you get on and finish your homework? Mrs. Maria Colbe looked at her son. His big brown eyes were full of mischief. Mr. Kotovsky has given up so much of his valuable time for you, and here you are just acting the goat and getting under my feet. But, Mama, I finished my homework. Oh, you can't have. Not all of it, I know. He has, moaned Francis, the Colbe's eldest son. It's just not fair. I've got to struggle all the time, and yet he finds everything so easy. Even these difficult sums. He picked up a piece of paper full of figures. Oh, go and help your brother. That's one way of thanking God for making you clever. Maria Colbe gave Raymond a push. Oh, he needn't bother. Papa will help me. He'll be home from work soon. My goodness, is it that late? She looked at the kitchen clock. Heavens, I'm all behind. Get your hands out. The woman hit out at Raymond, who had sneaked behind her and thrust his fingers into the mixing bowl. Out, out, gone. Go and help Joseph. He's picking flowers for our lady's altar. Gone, off. She gave the boy yet another push. Oh dear, I'll never get supper ready at this rate. Raymond did as he was told, but it seemed to the frustrated woman that in no time at all he was back again, a large bunch of flowers in his hands, and Joseph, his younger brother, in tow. Oh, there's a good boy, Raymond. Now, now go and arrange them tidily on Our Lady's altar. Joseph, go and lay the table. The woman eyed her son as he disappeared into the next room. When you finish the flowers, she shouted after him, why don't you kneel down and ask Our Lady to make you a good boy? Raymond looked down his nose at that last remark, but he did not need too much persuading to pray at the small shrine tucked away between two cupboards in the adjoining room. As young as he was, the picture of Our Lady of Chestakova filled him with great national pride. He thought of how his fellow countrymen some three hundred years before had prayed before a picture like this, asking the Mother of God's aid to save their town from the all-conquering Swedish army. Against all odds, a miraculous victory had been attained. Not only had the town of Chestakova been saved, but the invader had been put to flight and Poland liberated. With these thoughts in mind, he stood up, cupped his hands to form a bugle, making the best imitation of that instrument he could. I'd love to be a bugle boy and go forward and lead the Polish soldiers in battle. With that, he led his own charge back into the kitchen, much to the consternation of his occupants. Oh, be quiet, Raymond. The woman put her flowered hands to her head. Meanwhile, Joseph picked up the biscuit tin and used it as a drum. Stop that noise, you'll drive me crazy. Raymond had not heard his mother because of the noise he himself was making. He continued shouting and stomping around the table. Careful, careful, you knock the plates over. Oh, go out in the garden and play. The warning had come too late. With a great crash, the pile of dishes plunged to the floor and shattered. There was a deathly silence. Raymond knew he was for the high jump. I told you to be careful. Maria Colbe threw up her hands despairingly. Look what you've done, you stupid, disobedient boy. She grabbed him by the hair, and while the other two boys went down on their knees to try and clear up the mess, she stretched Raymond over a chair. With three boys to discipline, a cane was always to hand, and often in use. Raymond took his punishment with hardly a murmur. Afterwards, the youngster was very subdued, not so much from the beating as from remorse. He knew his parents were poor and had to work long hours to make ends meet. The smashed crockery would not help matters one little bit. With his head still lowered, Raymond had not noticed the arrival of his father. The man had witnessed the whole scene, 
quite happy to leave the disciplining to his more than capable wife. She continued her correction, but verbally. "'Your brothers don't give me half the trouble you do. They'll make something of their lives, but you!' She lifted her eyes heavenwards, and then, in a tone of rare seriousness, which Raymond at once detected, she said, "'I really don't know what is to become of you.' The boy left the room, his head hung lower than ever. His mother's last words had made an impact on him, and tears came to his eyes as he made for the little shrine he had so recently left. The Blessed Virgin's expression in the picture, like his own, was sorrowful. "'Oh, Immaculate Mary!' Then, echoing the words of his mother, "'What is to become of me?' From that day, Raymond changed completely. Now he spent more and more time before the shrine. Mrs. Colbay was amazed at the difference in her son, and so she began watching him very closely. It was then that she noticed that he was more often than not red-eyed after a prayer session. Unable to contain her curiosity any longer, she said to him, "'Raymond, what's the matter? Why are the tears? Only girls cry. Come along, tell me.' The boy looked at his mother, but said nothing. "'Raymond, I'm talking to you. What's the matter?' Raymond fidgeted, but still didn't answer. "'Raymond, you promised me that you'd be obedient, didn't you? Now look, whatever the trouble is, I'll tell no one.' "'All right, Mamma. You remember that day you said you didn't know what would become of me? Well, that made me think, think really hard. So I went to pray to Our Lady.' Then I kept going back to her and asked her to help me. Then one day in church, it happened. What happened? The boy's eyes lit up, and then he smiled. Our Lady appeared to me holding two crowns. One was white and the other red. Oh, she was so beautiful. She said to me, Which one do you choose? The white one meant that I would always be pure, and the red one that I would die like a martyr. Mrs. Colbay looked at him dumbfounded. Well, I told Our Lady, I choose them both. Then she smiled kindly at me and disappeared. As the condemned approached block eleven, Maximilian knew that the moment of destiny had caught up with him. By taking the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, he had already accepted the white crown. Now the time had come to accept the red. SS guard's command put an end to reminiscing, and Father Colbay looked at his surroundings. The block of death, as it had become known, 
stood in some isolation. Its yard was surrounded by a high wall, and the prisoners noticed that both block 11 and the one nearest to it had wooden shutters fixed to the windows. They concluded with apprehension that this was to stop the inmates from observing what was going on in the yard. Now they were hustled on past the wall of death, where so many innocent victims had been shot, and helped on their way by one of the SS personnel who were permanently on duty, ushered into the cell block, and down a stairway to the cellars. On and on they shuffled across the damp, uneven floor of the corridor. They stopped only while the iron-barred prison doors which they came to were unlocked. The loud clanging as they slammed to behind them echoed round the corridor in awesome finality. Now there was no ventilation, and the air was pestilential and heavy with the smell of death. On either side of the corridor, cells sealed tight with heavy doors were in evidence, and as the SS men's boots echoed through the corridor, so did the howling and cries of the condemned, as they clawed at the cell doors, begging for water. At the end of the passageway, there was one empty cell, its door hanging open on two large iron hinges. Here the men were brought to a standstill. Now, said the SS man, take off your clothes, hurry up. The skull and crossbones on his black, peaked cap and the lapel of his tunic seemed to leer at the naked bodies, and so did he. Ha, my pale beauties, without food and water, you'll soon shrivel up like tulips. He pushed them into the dark, windowless cell and laughed cruelly as the door slammed into place. It was dark, very dark. They could see nothing as they huddled together in the confined space. The concrete walls were thick and the door fitted to perfection, making the chamber a veritable air-sealed can. It did not take long for the atmosphere to become stifling and oppressive, and arms flailed about as each man tried to find a space away from the other. Sickness, weakness, dizziness, hallucinations, and then, mercifully, death would, as these men well knew, eventually be their lot in this place of permanent night. Later on that same evening, the SS returned to the cell at the end of the passage for a routine check. But they had a surprise in store for them. Instead of the usual wails and pleas for water, which gave them a good excuse to kick the bodies of the condemned, they heard a different sound. Hymns were being sung. Thrown off balance, the guards went away. In the daily inspection which followed, not only were hymns and prayers heard coming from that cell, but from neighbouring cells also. Ardent prayers and hymns to the Blessed Virgin echoed and re-echoed throughout the corridors and passages. And leading them all was Maximilian Kolbe, his voice strong and clear. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. So intense were these prayers that the men often failed to hear the SS inspection guard enter the cell. And when a poor unfortunate did become aware of them and stopped praying to plead for water, all he received was a boot in the groin. The guards hated this particular detail. The foul air and the stench of decaying flesh 
but now they had something more to hate. I'm sick of it, said Wangar to his companion. All this singing and praying, it gives you the creeps. I tell you, I feel really unnerved. The whole place is like a chapel, not a prison. But no amount of shouting and raving could stop Father Colbe from leading the prisoners in perpetual prayer. But where the SS failed, time did not. With each passing day, the voices weakened to a murmur. And then there was silence. One after the other, the men in the cell at the end of the passage lost consciousness and then died. At the end of two weeks, just four were still alive, and of those, Maximilian alone was conscious. He was calm, either kneeling or standing, but always praying. By now the Germans had grown impatient. This man was lasting too long. They needed the dark torture chamber for other victims. The SS doctor came, carrying a syringe. Father Maximilian, no longer able to stand or kneel, was seated with his back against the wall, his head slightly to one side. There was no fear, just a wonderful calm as he greeted his executioner with a smile. Stretching out his left arm, he breathed, Ave Maria. Father Maximilian had given all, everything he had and was to Our Lady even his last breath. Now he died as he wished. He had said to the friars, How happy one must feel when dying the death of a soldier, not in one's bed, but at the stake, facing a firing squad with a bullet in the heart, when sealing with blood one's love for Mary Immaculate, when shedding it to the last drop to hasten the conquest of the world for Christ through her. That is what I wish for myself. Later, a guard came to drag out the bodies and clean the cell. At the door, he stopped short. Normally, the twisted bodies were frightening. They were dirty, grotesque, with eyes like gargoyles. Not so Maximilian Kolbe. His body was clean and sound, his face radiant and beautiful. But those eyes, those deep brown eyes, they were open, wide open, lost in final ecstasy.